Hello, and welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Patak. Since September is Blood Cancer Awareness Month, today we wanted to spend some time learning more about what those types of cancers actually are. We know that about every three minutes, someone in the U.S. is diagnosed with some type of blood cancer. And close to 1.5 million Americans are living with or in remission from a blood cancer. Today, we'll focus on lymphomas, risk factors, symptoms, survivorship, because they make up about half of the blood cancers that are diagnosed every year. Here to help us explore this topic is my guest, Dr. Peter Martin. Dr. Martin is a professor of medicine, chief of the lymphoma program at Weill Cornell Medicine, and I would like to say a colleague in some way since I trained at Weill Cornell Medicine and probably works with a lot of the attendings that I had during my residency training. I'd love to start all of our episodes by asking my guests about their aha moments, about what made them sort of start doing what they do in their lives. So what brought you to this field of medicine? There are sort of a broad subset of pretty simple answers to that and then one more complicated one. I think the simple answers are it's largely still based in internal medicine and I like that. I, I don't have to give up all of my prior training. I still get to do that on a daily basis. It's a very sort of thoughtful specialty. It's not a go, go, go type of specialty like the emergency room, for example. I'm more sort of a take my time, thoughtful type of person. I really like getting to know people for long periods of time. So it factors in there. But then uh, there's got to be something else beyond that, because I think you could say the same thing about a lot of different specialties. I think some of it is this idea that in lymphoma, we get to be part of people's lives when things are not going well and we get to work together. And almost always we're able to turn things around and accomplish something positive and being part of that positive process, not even necessarily being a driver of it, but being witness to it, I think sort of triggers these little dopamine hits in your brain that create a little bit of an addiction. And you just keep going into every next room and meeting the next person, developing these relationships and keep looking for ways to help make things better because it makes everyone feel really good. And it's nice to be part of that. That really hits home for me. I'm also internal medicine and decide to stay unspecialized. So as a generalist in primary care, but it's just the deep relationships and really being able to have colleagues that you can reach out to when you discover something that you may not be able to manage on your own. And it really makes me feel a lot better to know how far we've come with lymphoma management and the management of blood cancers, where we really can think about it in some ways for some forms as a chronic condition. So let's just take a step back and talk about blood cancers in general, types of blood cancers and some of the differences. Yeah. Blood cancers have names that people will recognize. And specifically, these are leukemia, lymphoma, multiple myeloma. And one thing that's important to keep in mind is that these are just language. These are labels that human beings have put on to something that was essentially an observation. And these are really old words. Biology, our understanding of biology changes and language changes, but some of the words we use are of historical relevance. So leukemia essentially means, leuke refers to white blood cells and emia means too many of them in the bloodstream and bone marrow. Multiple myeloma, mild refers to the bone marrow again. 
glioma is a tumor. So myeloma is a bone marrow tumor, and there are many of them, multiple myeloma. Lymphoma essentially refers to, again, oma, a tumor of the lymphatic system or lymphoma. The word itself is probably over 100 years old. The first recognition of lymphoma probably goes to about 200 years old. And you can imagine that in that time frame, our understanding of diseases has changed considerably. And so now we have, for example, some lymphomas that we find floating around in the bloodstream, sort of a leukemic form of lymphoma or lymphomas in the bone marrow causing bone marrow tumors. I think in some ways, those old labels can be a little bit confusing, but they stick in our mind and they still have some utility. But officially, lymphomas are white blood cell cancers, primarily in the lymphatic system. Uh, that's really, really helpful. And I think, you know, just thinking about it from the primary care standpoint or just plain language when I'm talking to my patients about it, that's really helpful. There's just so much crossover. You've got to kind of drill down once you have discovered this initial abnormality. Yeah. I don't know if this helps you feel better or worse, but when I'm teaching our medical students and residents, I really encourage them not to focus too much on the, the names of these individual entities because they are really constantly in evolution. Just this past year, there was a new revision of the official classification of blood cancers. And now we're up to 138 different kinds of lymphoma specifically. I think that if you can sort of understand broad strokes and where they come from and uh, some of the biology, that's more relevant than memorizing just a bunch of names. And then also for people out there or patients that are coming to their primary care doctor, we're not necessarily talking to them about blood cancers unless they're coming to us with a symptom or we find something on a basic CBC blood test. We're talking heavily about breast cancer screening and colon cancer screening and lung cancer screening potentially with our patients. Can you talk a little bit about what the symptoms might be? I mean, it's going to be a very different experience for you than for someone like me who's really just sort of in that detective phase where someone may not even have any questions about it or concerns versus somebody who's coming in with you know, very specific symptoms. Yeah. I mean, I think it's appropriate for primary care doctors for sure to focus on diseases that are more common and also diseases that have screening modalities as well as diseases that have treatments that differ depending on when something is diagnosed. So those kinds of cancers that you mentioned meet all of those criteria. Lymphomas don't necessarily meet any of those criteria, which is not to say that they're not common. They're pretty common. They're probably the sixth most common cancer in North America. But as I said, there are 138 different kinds of them. And so each one of them qualifies as a rare disease individually. The part about them that makes them challenging in terms of this concept of like looking out for something or early detection is it's blood. Can you think of a single area in your body where there's not blood? And the answer is not really, right? And so I've seen people with like a lump between their toes that was lymphoma or back pain that was lymphoma. And it would be ridiculous to say to somebody, you know, watch out for a lump between your toes right? because it's not going to be lymphoma 999 whatever times out of 100,000. So, you know, in general, people with lymphoma will present with some sort of palpable lump somewhere, but a significant proportion of people will have other symptoms. In general, my advice to people who have had lymphoma, who are thinking about recurrences of lymphoma is just to say, you know, if you've got something and you're not sure what it is, 
let me know what your symptom is and we'll work on it together. Most of the time, it's not going to be lymphoma, but if something's there, we'll work on it together and figure it out. In general, cancer-related symptoms and lymphoma-related symptoms tend to get worse over time. They don't tend to get better. And so we just kind of watch things a little bit and then do some testing based on where the symptoms are telling us. But it's almost too many to mention what the different things could be. You bring up two things that are really important, specifically for folks that would be coming in first to their primary care doctors, that one, you're looking for like groups of symptoms in terms of what's most common. You're not just going to be thinking of one lump that you can feel somewhere. It's a combination of other types of symptoms. By all means, even if you have one lump that is bothering you, you should definitely bring it to the attention of your doctor. Like you said, there's probably so many, but sweats, weight loss, a lot of things that are commonly kind of together, but you want to just think more about a lot of different things together being something that leads you towards that sort of diagnosis. So that's one thing. And then time, like you said, I'll often feel a swelling somewhere on myself for my child. And you can't but help kind of think some things sometimes, but you're really thinking through like time and you're watching it and you're looking and generally it's a bug bite or something that resolves. So I think time and symptoms that travel together. Yeah, yeah you're right. There's a constellation of things. Doesn't tend to be just one thing. No, you're 100% right. These are things that we sort of do intuitively when we're dealing with something that's more tangible, like heart disease. Is it happening when we're exercising, you know, but all of those same sorts of thoughts go on in my head related to cancer and then just become more used to it because that's what I do. And I also feel my son's neck every once in a while and feel big lymph nodes and freak out. And it turns out he's got an infection and then it's gone a few days later and I breathe a sigh of relief and my wife looks at me and asks why I'm ever feeling his neck to begin with. I think it's important to kind of honor that feeling as well. I mentioned to you, I married a gastroenterologist we both met at Weill Cornell, both doing our internal medicine training. And he's definitely sort of the calmer one of the two of us. I will always feel my kids for things and then go running to him and he'll be like, all right, just relax. <laughs> <laughs> Good to have a balance in any relationship. <laughs> That's right. So can you help us sort of work through maybe potential risk factors? You mentioned one is that if you've had lymphoma in the past, you're thinking about recurrence. But what about people who don't have a history of blood cancers? What are certain things that they should think about as potential risk factors? Good question. Again, this is maybe one of the things that sort of adds to an air of mystery around lymphoma. Unlike breast cancer or colon cancer, where family history really massively dominates that kind of question, there's nothing that really stands out as a major risk factor in most cases, but let's go over a few of them. One of them is interestingly family history. It's just a very weak risk factor. So if you ask a bunch of people with lymphoma, do you have a first degree relative with lymphoma? And then you ask people without lymphoma, do you have a first degree relative with lymphoma? The person with lymphoma is about two or three times more likely to answer yes to that question. But because lymphomas are rare, you multiply that risk by two or three and you still end up with rare, right? So just because somebody's got a first degree relative with lymphoma, they still probably won't develop lymphoma. But it's an interesting sort of epidemiological observation that suggests some sort of heritable or environmental exposure that may be common amongst first degree relatives. Despite a lot of attempts, we have yet to identify what that is in most cases. As I say, on a person-to-person -person basis, it's almost irrelevant, but on a population basis, there's something that you can demonstrate. Then there are sort of risk factors that we can acquire over time. 
Some of these are changes in our immune system. That's probably not so surprising when we're dealing with cancers of the immune system that changes in the immune system might predispose to that. And interestingly, it kind of flips two directions. Some people have immunodeficiencies. These could be inherited or, or you're born with them, or they could be like the HIV virus and AIDS causes a pretty severe immunodeficiency that's associated with increased risk of lymphoma. Less now than it was in the 1980s and early 1990s, much less now that effective therapies for HIV are available, but still something. Or people taking immunosuppressive medications for a solid organ transplant. On the flip side, some people have overactive immune systems. And in particular, we're talking about overactive immune systems or autoimmunity that is primarily driven by B cells. So rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and especially Sjogren's syndrome is a major risk factor for some forms of non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. And then lastly, maybe we get to some exposures. And this is where a lot of work has been done and really hasn't demonstrated anything really conclusive. People may have read a little bit about herbicides. There may be something there, but it's hard to demonstrate and hard to prove, and it's not super convincing. Then there are uncommon lymphomas that can sometimes be associated with other exposures to certain infections, like H. pylori can be associated with some stomach lymphomas, for example, but those are pretty uncommon. It's a long list and for the most part, mostly irrelevant to most people. That's something I really worry about is like environmental exposures, as you mentioned, over a hundred different types of lymphomas and they're each characterized as rare. So it's hard to even like have those studies around environmental risk. So we're seeing like, for example, with colon cancer, we're seeing earlier rates in younger people. One, we have to find out why and understand that we need to start thinking about screening people earlier. So it's interesting that with lymphoma, there's still not really any sort of... Right. At the end of the day, you know, if we all try to live a healthy lifestyle, that's about the best we can do. But the one thing that I've learned in all of this is that there's just so much of life that's beyond our control. You can do everything right, and uh, life has something else in mind, and people get lymphoma, people get different kinds of cancers, and it wasn't their fault that they didn't go out looking for it. It just happens. From a scientific perspective, it does push us to try to answer some of those questions, as you say, like, why, why is colon cancer becoming more common in younger people? And then that brings me to a question in terms of, so in the office, the person who's coming every year for their routine physical and generally I will be checking a CBC on them. Sometimes you will find an abnormality on the CBC that then leads you down the path to discovering a new blood cancer where the person doesn't have any symptoms. Utility of that routine CBC, that's what we do. As a screening tool for lymphoma or blood cancers in general, probably not a super useful screening tool, even among people who have had prior lymphoma. Blood counts are not so useful as a screening tool but we're doing them because other things are more common, like anemia. And so it's not that rare in medicine that we uncover something accidentally. Right. And that takes us down a different path. So now that we sort of talked about risk factors and potentially what you might experience in your doctor's office, concerns that you should be bringing to your doctor if you have sort of these groups of symptoms... What are some of the shifts, we talked about this in the beginning, in terms of treatment options that have really changed your perspective about one's journey with a lymphoma diagnosis? Things are changing quite quickly now to the point where often my strategy in managing some lymphomas is to just kind of keep kicking the can a little bit down the road because as long as I can be successful in doing that, we keep coming up with new 
treatment strategies, right? But essentially, you know, if we look at the different treatment modalities, we have surgery, not so commonly used for lymphoma because it's a blood disorder, right? So it's good for diagnosis, but not so much for treatment in most cases. Radiation is kind of like a non-surgery surgery, again, useful for some cases. The way radiation is being delivered now is vastly different than it was delivered 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so it can be used more effectively with fewer side effects, but still not applicable to most lymphomas. Certain cases, yes. We've got still the same old fashioned traditional chemotherapies. I think we're getting a little bit better at using them. Using the same treatments over long periods of time, outcomes continue to improve even if we've used the same treatments. And that suggests that in some ways, we're getting better at just supporting people through treatment. Where we're seeing really major improvements in care are in two fields specifically. One is the field of immunotherapies. This gets a lot of play in the solid tumor world like lung cancer, but it's had a huge impact for the past two decades in lymphoma. And we've got a variety of different ways to manipulate the immune system so that our own immune system can fight against cancer. It's almost gotten to the point where it's like science fiction-y Really, people will take out somebody's cells, genetically modify them to fight against cancer, and then transfuse them back into a person. Those cells can then go on and cure cancer. That's pretty crazy. Targeted therapies would be the other major advancement. The idea is that, you know, historically, you'd find a poison in the rainforest or whatever, and then see what it does to a panel of different kinds of cancers. Now, scientists are saying, okay, I've got this kind of cancer. I've figured out that this is what makes that cancer tick. Let me design a drug that changes that exact process. So we've now got a dozen medications that interact with different kinds of cancers in a much more specific way. So they tend to be very effective, but they don't tend to have as many side effects because they're more specific to exactly what's wrong with the cancer, not just some kind of global poison, which is not to say that chemotherapy still is not super effective and helpful, but it's exciting to see all of these things and to be part of them as a researcher to maybe have early access to them and be able to offer them to people before they're broadly available. Going back to relationships, you can really think about when you're talking to your patients about these things that you can offer them for years, for decades potentially, and how that just changes the conversation around just what it means to live with or survive lymphoma. Yeah, most people with lymphoma really will have a longevity or a survival, however you want to call it, that's equivalent to the non-lymphoma population, right? So my job really as a lymphoma doctor is to learn as much as I can about this person, all of the things that go along with being that person, and then try to match that with what I can learn about the lymphoma and then this variety of treatment options to try to ensure that that person's life, however long it's going to be, typically as long as it would have been without lymphoma, is as close to what it would have been without lymphoma as possible. Amazing. Before I let you go, I'd love to close with something that someone who's listening today can take away and maybe do in their own lives based on your expert advice. You know, I guess one thing I would say is that maybe as a society, we need to reframe a little bit the way we think about cancer. It's not a taboo topic. Cancer is as much part of life as anything else is a part of life. It's not something that people should be ashamed of. Nobody should be 
embarrassed to talk about their cancer. And, and I think the way we talk to people with cancer and the way family members and communities interact with cancers hopefully will change over time. Almost all of us are going to deal with either cancer ourselves or with a close connection to somebody with cancer. And so we need to learn to talk about it in a way that makes it feel more normal. The last thing I want is for the people that I'm dealing with every day to feel like they have to stay at home and hide in their room because they don't want anyone else to find out about it. I love that. Thank you so much for being with us today. We've talked to Dr. Peter Martin about lymphoma and blood cancers in general. And what we learned today is just that we have to be able to talk about what we're going through so that we can just strengthen the relationships in our lives to help us continue on our lifespan journey and our health span journey rather than sort of allowing ourselves to think anything in our lives, whatever we come across as something we can't share or we can't work to overcome. Thank you so much for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at webmdpodcast at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Patak for the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. 